The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. Connie Cottingham and Mike Sykes Garden is every plant collector's fantasy. Each of their lifetime garden adventures are intertwined in their eclectic Athens, Georgia garden. Connie is a landscape architect and a garden travel writer. She has gardened in Arkansas, Louisiana, and Georgia. Her weekly garden plants and advice email, love notes from the garden, are short, humorous, and informative. Mike is a horticulturalist who is Georgia through and through. His garden world has included owning and operating retail garden centers, hosting a garden radio talk show, assisting with new plant introductions, and serving as president of the Georgia Master Gardeners. Together, Connie and Mike offer talks and landscape consultations between discovering new public gardens. This is episode 21. Get acquainted with your garden on the Garden Question podcast. We will talk with Mike and Connie after this. You're invited to ask your garden design, build, or grow question at thegardenquestion.com. Not only do you get a chance to ask your own question, but you might inspire the next episode of the Garden Question podcast. So go to thegardenquestion.com and ask your question. Connie and Mike, with home sales at a record pace, how do you get started getting acquainted with your new garden? First off is look at where the rain goes. When we have one of these summer thunderstorms, it's a great time to grab an umbrella, go outside and make sure the downspouts are doing the right thing. The water is flowing away from the house because there's no amount of pretty that can fix that kind of problem. You don't want to fix it after you've done the landscaping. Take care of that first. Also go outside with a camera. It's amazing what you can see in a picture that you become kind of blind to especially if you've been in a house for a while. These tricks all work with someone who's been in the same house for a decade. All of a sudden, the neighbor's huge white garage door, it becomes like this glaring thing that you need to screen. Or what is the ladder doing there? We need to store it where it's not visible. Why is the view blocked from here when we could limb up that tree and open up air and space and view? It's amazing what you can see with a camera that you really don't see with your eyes. You could also walk around with a friend because they can point out things that you don't see. Look at seasons. It's not only the different changes in the seasons, especially with deciduous trees and deciduous shrubs. The sun changes throughout the year. Noticing the sun patterns, the shade patterns, and where you think you have a shade garden in winter is a completely different place in summer. You really have to know your shade patterns, the plants that are there. You might be surprised by one that just makes an amazing flower show that you didn't realize it was such a great flowering plant when you looked at it three months earlier. Right. And you'd be surprised what pops up in the spring that you didn't know was there at all. It's amazing, especially bulbs. If People have a lot of bulbs in their garden. They would hide from you in the summer, wouldn't they? That's right. 
than any kind of pests, including deer, which is a big deal here in Georgia. Also, utility. We're pretty much in the country on five acres. We have the Amerigas truck coming into our backyard to take care of the propane a couple times a year. We've got to be able to get the pickup truck in. In fact, that's how I prune the muscadine vine that goes over the arbor is backing up the pickup and standing on the pickup. I like that much more than a ladder. I think a compost pile is essential. What kind of outdoor living you're going to do? We have a few outdoor parties every year. I like the outdoor office that's a table underneath the pecan tree. That is something that like my own little special place. Sometimes I'll put a tablecloth on it just because it's visible from inside and it makes the backyard look better to me. It's what makes you happy that really matters. Another thing would be the maintenance level that you want to get into. How much time are you really willing to put into it or how much of an investment are you really willing to put into it? Your investment may be just to have someone mow it. It may be to have someone give you professional advice and install it for you, which is fantastic too. It's just what works for you and just honor that. Another thing, too, might be to bring in a professional arborist or work with a designer who knows trees. It's amazing how many people that we have worked with that will leave a tree because it's there. And some of these are volunteer hollies that the birds have planted. You could replace it with a much better plant. Just because it's here doesn't mean you have to keep it. It's hard for people to cut down a plant. They would be much happier if they got professional advice on what could we do with this. Sometimes it's just a good gardening friend or a master gardener that's a friend can walk around with you too. I go to people's yards and help them decide what to do with plants that they have. Everybody planted laurel petalums and they thought they were going to stay right below the windows. Well, now they're 15, 20 feet over the top of the house and they want to cut them down. A lot of times you can save those by limbing them up, making them into a structured tree form, really add a beautiful effect and underplant those with other bulbs, flowers, perennials or whatever. And we have done that, turned this mass of plants into a windswept trees is the look it ended up being. It's amazing how a plant that you think you need to take down, sometimes you can just tree form it. Tree forming a plant, you often have to keep that maintenance going. You're going to have to prune a couple times a year. You can't tree form it once and it will knows how to behave. Yeah, that's a good idea. A plant that overgrows, just make it into a tree form maybe if it's got the space. That's true. We have a tree form, big snowball, Viburnum, Viburnum macrocephalum. It's in front of one of our windows in the front of the house. It's limbed up the trunk about four feet, five feet. We have to go back every year and cut out little suckers that come up at the bottom. Mostly is real low maintenance and it's a beautiful thing when it's in full bloom. I've seen some beautiful single trunk crepe myrtles. That does take a little bit of work. Uh, tree form yopon hollies can be wonderful. Again, that takes a little bit of work, but it's not a lot. For the return on the investment of time, it really is not a lot of work. I would also like to say that if you're bringing in a professional to help you with a landscape and you're building a house, don't wait until the house is almost built to bring in the landscape designer. They can help you so much with siting where the driveway is going to be, how to lay out the front patio, where your outdoor living spaces can be. It's so much easier to work with the land 
as you're coming onto the site than to come in and say, oh, we could have done it this way. Or there are so many times where I've gone to a landscape client and you have the land and the budget that's left at the end of the building of the house. Often you could have done a much better job. What if we had put the driveway this way? And usually you don't tell this to the people. If you bring them in when you've got the house plan ready to go onto the land, the landscape architect can help you lay out things like what trees to save, how to do the driveway, where to do the back living spaces, things like that. Grouping their plants instead of storing them all over the landscape and everywhere, put them in groups of like varieties, same water requirements that make it easier. Keeping the utility and the maintenance in mind. Don't get the shrubs so close to the house that they are causing problems. Make sure there's enough water spigots around. Strange little angles in the concrete where it becomes a maintenance issue. There's a lot of it I look at from maintenance. How do you get a load of mulch into the backyard? It's amazing how many people will kind of trap themselves. They've blocked all access to the backyard. You really need to keep utility in mind as you do that too. The other thing is how you're going to live in the space and creating outdoor living spaces. A lot of what we do is work with people and just give them a few ideas and do hourly consultations. I've really pretty much stopped doing landscape design plans. What we do is walk around the garden with someone and say, have you considered pruning this plant to get a different effect? Let's redo this bed. You would do it this way and this way. We walk away. They have the idea as some landscape sketches. Sometimes we'll come back a year later and it's like, okay, I've done everything you said this time. Now, now let's go to the next level. Getting professional help with landscaping doesn't mean a complete design. That is great, especially if you've got a new house. But you can also get advice too. Just have someone come help you with some questions and all, help you with ideas on how to make your garden a little bit better, especially if you're a do-it-yourself gardener. Clarify what you mean by utility. I consider utility basic functioning, making things easier on you, making things work. We were just talking about how many people really don't like uh, crepe myrtles by their backyard pool. Because right now we have a crepe myrtle over our driveway that is dropping a ton of pink petals. It's the things that make your life a little bit easier. You still have the fantastic design and everything, but keep in mind some things that may be obvious to other people are not obvious to you. It's something that can make your life easier by making it more efficient. Don't let the beauty get in the way of what you need to do. So you could do this wonderful planting and then find out you have just blocked all access into the backyard unless you're on foot with a wheelbarrow. But every time I go to put the tree in on a certain area or a shrub, she'll say, oh, that's where they got to have the drive to get through to get to the back of the property. I have to change my idea of where I was going to plant it. Yeah, that magnolia is going to be right on the septic field. Absolutely not. <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, I've got a project that it's locked in. It's on a lake. You don't have any access on the backside. You've got a creek on one side. The other side's got a house real close and there's the hardscape in the waist. But there's things in the back that would be so much more efficient if we could have some equipment back there. But we can't get back there. So that turns it all into hand work and hand hauling it out. That access. You could buy you a boat and expense it out. Well, I was thinking about the barge. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, and consider when the tree service has to take down a tree, what are they going to do if you can get at least a pickup in the backyard? And the clearance has to be not only into the backyard, but actually being able to maneuver. I like the idea of grouping trees so that there still is some open space, some sunshine and some lawn available. If you get the trees too much over the property, you end up with nothing but shade and it feels very kind of dank and dark. Work with trees where they're kind of in sweeps with open, sunny spaces in between. Shade for a lot of people is a challenge. How do you solve a shade problem? I think one thing I would recommend would be looking at limbing up the trees to bring more air into them. You don't have to take out all the trees. Sometimes you can just limb them up and get a lot more air circulation going, a little more light in. There are some amazing shade plants and shade in Georgia, especially in July and August, is a good thing. Shade is not all bad. Do beware that when you're planting trees, they do grow up. They can get where they just shade out the whole property. And if you look at some of the 1970s subdivisions, they've got beautiful mature trees. Most of the sunlight is just on the streets and that's it. Do you have a recommendation for what plants people might try under the shade? Oh, we love shade plants. I've really gotten into all the different ajugas for low ground cover, which spread very well. A lot of the native plants love shade. One of my all-time favorites is the spigelia, which has this amazing, fun, kind of yellow and red, bright sculptural, kind of Dr. Susie <laughs> um, flower to it. And it draws the hummingbirds. And that's a great plant. Shade gardens, if it's under a deciduous tree, it's actually pretty sunny in early spring. So that might be good for your camellias and azaleas. Kind of one of the favorite understory tree that we have is the Empress of China dogwood. It's a late bloomer, absolutely gorgeous, holds its foliage all winter. Very unusual. That's one of the oriental dogwoods. We're so used to the native dogwood that, of course, we all love. This one actually blooms in June and has an evergreen leaf to it. So it's a very different dogwood. Yeah, that's a great tree. I love that tree. I've, I've actually got one in my yard. So, If you've got space in the shade garden, you could go with sweeps of ferns. The ferns are fantastic. The autumn fern does very well. Solomon seal. I have Solomon seal that is an inch high and I have another one that's hip high and they're both fantastic. Variegated Solomon seal will add light into the shade garden. There's so much green in a shade garden that adding some of the burgundies like the hookahs and the chartreuse like the carexes, the sedges, add some life to it. Also, sculpture and bird bath. Usually a shade garden is under a tree, which is a fantastic place to put a bird bath. They do like to sit on a branch, scope things out, and then come down to the bird bath. Where can homeowners turn for inspiration? Well, my thought is always go to your local nurseries and walk around and see what they have in stock. Or if you see something in a neighbor's yard that you like, ask the neighbor and then go to the nursery and shop around. Read the tags on the plants. Most of them have codes now where you can use your phone on them and get more information on that plant. And you can get some great ideas that way. Another good idea is to walk around the neighborhood because if it's living and thriving in your neighborhood, 
what you can see from walking down the street or doing garden tours in your area, you can see plants that will make it in your garden. See them once they're established, get some ideas for different plant combinations. So that's always good is to look at the neighborhoods. By walking around the neighborhood too, you get an idea how much space that plant requires. I like looking at the old neighborhoods, the ones where the plants might have been there for 50 years or more. These are tough plants that are doing better than some of the houses they're with. So you can see which ones are the true performers in your area because these plants, like an oak leaf hydrangea, might have been there for decades. That's a fantastic native plant. And sometimes you'll see a plant, you just have to try it. It's one of those things like, I've got to have that plant. I'll find a place to put it somewhere. But I love the way that plant looks and I'm going to have it. Just try stuff. It's also a great way to get ideas for annuals. Beauty of annuals is you get to change your mind every year. You get to have your favorites, maybe try it in a different color, maybe try something new, or there's a new variety that you've got to try. There's not a lot of investment as far as time investment in annuals. You're only there until about November, and then you're fine. Go ahead and do anything you really want to with annuals. You can play a lot that way. Are there still any garden magazines left, book recommendations that you might have that people might find inspiration? Oh, yes. They're not as many magazines as they were. They are slowly disappearing. I like American Gardener. You can't buy it on the stand. You have to order it through the American Horticulture Society. I'm trying to think of something of this. Of course, uh, Horticulture Magazine. Southern Living's always has garden sections for the South. One of my favorite books, and I think anybody that gardens in the South should have a copy of it, is called A Southern Garden by Elizabeth Lawrence. It was written in 1942, but it's just as popular now as it was then. The things she writes about are the things we're growing today, a lot of them. She was a great collector of plants and record keeper. Great book just for reading and getting ideas. A Southern Garden by Elizabeth Lawrence. In Atlanta, the Cherokee Library is founded on her materials. They were in a bidding war to get it, and Count Cherokee Garden Club got all of her writings. They're in there. You can go to the garden and see them in the library there. And you can they will let you look at them and use them and look through them. So it's an amazing thing to go to. Where was she based? It's in Charlotte. Her home is there. It's a public garden now. or You can go there and visit it and see things. She was born in Marietta. She grew up around Atlanta and stuff, and then moved to Charlotte as a child with her father. She's definitely for southern areas. Both from here all the way down to the coast, she wrote with ladies and gardeners and men all over the South. That's how she recorded a lot of her plant findings, how people would trade plants with her. They would send her a plant. She wrote for the Charlotte Observer for I don't know how many years. She had a garden column. I wish I could have met her. I think she would have been the most fascinating person. One great reference book, too, for us is just a Southern Living Garden Guide. It's just one volume that has so much in it that really fits the South. They had pages on all the different crepe myrtles and how long they bloom and when they start bloom, what color they are. You really have this kind of tome reference book, which is good to have. There are more and more online sources to find information too. One of the great things that came out of 2020 was this abundance of online garden classes and 
garden tours. And we started with classes from Great Sixter in England, which we loved to visiting years before. When we were in solitary confinement last year, we were just so hungry for these vicarious tours of gardens. We learned quite a bit from that. There is the Garden Conservancy has classes available and we love them so much. We got a membership. It's just a fantastic resource for looking at different gardens. The National Garden Scheme in England has a wonderful resource where you can just tour gardens. You don't have to absolutely see plants that will work in Georgia in these. You can look at how different shapes and forms and colors work together or different garden rooms are formed and get inspiration from that. Or you can just escape and enjoy walking through a garden tour. So it doesn't have to all absolutely apply to your shade garden in the backyard. All inspiration is great. Both worked at State Botanical Gardens of Georgia. What is your advice on how to get the most benefits from visiting a public garden like the State Botanical Garden? If you're lucky like us and live nearby, keep going back because there's always change happening in the garden. You go in the spring, you're going to see completely different things in the fall. It's amazing to go through all the different seasons. Go weekly if you can. There's always something changing at the garden. If you're going to a public garden, check the website first because you never know if something has happened that you need to know about, what the hours are. There was one botanical garden I saw that was closed on Tuesdays, which I never would have expected. And you can also get a quick orientation of what's there. It's so frustrating to find out you miss something once it's over, like a 2 p.m. cooking demonstration or butterfly release or something. And then also when you go, take care of you. Take the hat, the sunscreen, the bug spray, the water. Make sure you're taking care of you because you're going to enjoy it so much more if you come prepared. Pay close attention to specific gardens too. If shade is your issue, then go to the shade garden and pay closer attention to that. If you've got hot, dry areas to plant, look at the Mediterranean garden or a sunny garden. The herb garden is great for hot, dry areas. And if you're interested in cooking, you've got that wonderful bonus with that too. Also, it's a fantastic place to take out of town visitors. It's a place where kids can be kids, where you're outdoors, you're more relaxed. Make sure you get some great photos because you get people being themselves. One of my favorite pictures of my sister is her on a bench talking to her preteen son, just deep in conversation. Just shows much more than just if they stood and looked at you. When I take photos of plants and plant combinations, I'll take pictures of the signage too. So I have the proper name of the plant and I've got that where I can get that right when I'm referring to that photo again. Well, that's the thing I do in the garden too is if the plant I can't identify, I don't have a sign on it, just whip out your cell phone, take a photo and then find somebody working in the garden or a volunteer at the garden, show them the photo and it's much easier for them to identify that away than you trying to say, well, it's got green leaves and a pink flower. It could be a million things. The photo is a quick way to identify. We used to have that all the time at the garden. People would come up as they were getting ready to leave says, we saw this out there and we don't know what it is. Could you help us? And 
It's so much fun being able to identify it for them. You can just see a smile on their face. A botanical garden's a great place, too, to go alone. Take a book. I take a sketchbook sometimes. You can move at your pace. You can see what you want to see. You can get away from technology of all kinds. It's a great place to just go. Don't forget the gift shop. Everybody likes to go through there. They have the great gardening books and plants that you can buy to take home. Maybe something that you saw in the garden, garden decor and things like that. If you can get there at a time when they're having a plant sale at a garden like that, you can get some real unusual plants that they bring in for their annual sales. Usually spring and fall is when they have those. What's the inside story of the State Botanical Garden of Georgia? What's something that the general public wouldn't know? Well, there's over 300 acres at the garden, so there's a lot to see. There's lots of trails for hiking and that kind of stuff. And a funny story that I remember when I was there, a lady came into the conservatory looking for somebody, and she saw us, and she said, do you know you have snakes in the garden? <laughs> yes, ma'am. 300 acres, we can't get them all. You know? <laughs> and uh, other ones are, y'all have poison ivy in this garden. 300 acres of woodland. Part of it, too, is that there's so much more to a botanical garden, and especially this botanical garden, the State Botanical Garden of Georgia, than just flowers. It is a beautiful place to come visit. It's very inspiring with the flowers and the color and the plants. There's also a strong education factor. Conservation and research is very strong at this garden. It's award-winning. Art is a part of the garden. There's not only art exhibits in two places in the conservatory, but they have this new art museum that is stunning. It is open with reservations, so you have to go ahead and just plan to visit and go online and make sure you claim your spot. They also trial plants. When you go to a botanical garden, any garden, you can get design ideas. So something that might be at a big scale or something, you can you can relate that down to a smaller scale or you can see plant combinations you're not used to that really inspire you or how a plant you thought was made for the ground is thriving in a container. Yeah, great container garden ideas. Yeah, yeah. And also gardens celebrate that area. So a great garden will celebrate the area they're in. So the Georgia Piedmont, you can really see in the gardens in our area. But if you go to Phoenix, you'll see a completely different garden. If you go to LA, you'll see a completely different garden. The fact that these regions are so different is part of the beauty of these gardens. When people come in from out of town, bring them to our garden because it really reflects all of Georgia. Bring them to your local garden. One thing that's really big right now are the food demonstration gardens. These gardens are not only beautiful, they're educational. What are the unique features about the children's garden at the Botanical Garden? This was so exciting to watch the children's garden take shape because I walked past it from the car to my office every day as it was under construction. They did such an amazing job. I just love this garden. It is one of the most parent-friendly gardens I've heard, too. It's also very fun if you're just an inner child and you don't have an actual child with you. What they do is it's very low-tech, which I like, very hands-on, which I like. It lets you just experience things. There's some playful aspects to it too, but it's not a playground. There's a lot of native plants around it. So you don't realize you're learning about all these native plants. You're just surrounded by them. One of the coolest native plant areas is the pitcher plant bog. You can see different types of pitcher plants that are native to Georgia. 
I've been on tours where they will open up one of these and see all the disgusting insects at the bottom of the pitcher plants and little eight-year-old guys think it's wonderful. It's a great way to learn. Sometimes they've got tadpoles in the water that you can look at, different perspectives to view the same areas. The vegetable garden is in there and it's a great garden that's always just so interesting and full of plants that instead of just knowing that vegetables are lined up on the grocery store shelves, you can see them on plants too, which is a nice perspective for kids that don't see vegetable gardens very much. Let me tell you about the chestnut tree in the children's garden. Sure, go ahead. Call it the bones of the tree. It's this sculpture that you walk through that is the size that a chestnut tree would have been when the first European settlers might have been coming through. Part of the reason Europe came over here was because they were looking for great wood for all the shipbuilding that was going on at that time. Chestnut trees also got chestnut blight at a certain point, too. This tree is so majestic, and you learn about chestnut trees and when they were native, what happened to them, how huge they were, because you can walk the whole length of what a fallen chestnut tree would have looked like. It's also just kind of like this cool pathway you can go through. So I'm sure a great percentage of people have no idea that they're walking through something that looks like a tree. Other people will read the sign and find about it or will discuss it with people. It's just that kind of experience that the kids have where they can go up into the tree branches in this elevated platform and see from a bird's eye view. Took us a few weeks when we first opened the garden. They thought the water garden was a swimming pool. <laughs> so they were actually getting in and coming to the garden in their bathing suits even. No, this is to look at, not swim in. <laughs> I don't think I'd put that in the podcast. Well, though. No, <laughs> oh, they need to know that they're not supposed to swim in. <laughs> The newest thing at the garden is the art museum. It's decorative arts like porcelain. Mrs. Dean Day Sanders gave her personal collection and it is unbelievable. Every piece in this collection, which is strong in porcelains, has a botanical or a bird or an animal on it. So it's a very strong horticulture tie. But they also tie it to plant exploration during different periods of time. They tie it to plants that you can see in the garden. One of the exhibits, coffee, tea, and chocolate services. In the conservatory, you can find the coffee and the chocolate plants, which are tropical growing inside the conservatory. You can find the tea camellia in the Oriental Garden, in the Asian Garden. Ties to that. It ties to the many different birds in the area. There is some wonderful sculptures of animals around the world and then an explanation of the different types of habitats that animals live in, whether it's savanna or jungle, in the water, whatever. There are also some very historic books that have been used to decorate scientific illustrations have been used to decorate. The porcelain pieces have these amazing scientific illustrations on them. And this is available. All you need to do is make an appointment to see it. It is open at a certain time of day. So you just sign up to be in for that day. More gardening adventures with Connie Cottingham and Mike Sykes in just a moment. 
TheGardenQuestion.com is an awesome website because we expand each podcast episode with accurate resources and links for gardeners. You can also listen to every single episode again as many times as you like. Think of it as an extension of the podcast at TheGardenQuestion.com. You've both been master gardeners for decades, and Mike, you've served as president locally and at the state Master Gardener Association. Uh, what is the Master Gardener? The Master Gardener program was started way back when I first got out of college. I went to work for a retail nursery in Atlanta. This was just the beginning of the Master Gardener program, and they wanted to take it, but they were afraid to go. And I, I said, listen, if y'all will take it, I will take it with you. And so we all went together. We went the second group to graduate out of the Master Gardener classes. Been going on for many years now, and it's a way for people to learn about gardening in their area, and it covers both trees, shrubs, flowers, perennials, annuals, vegetables, weeds, insects. You learn about all the different things you may run into in a garden. And they're wonderful people. You meet some of the nicest people in the Master Gardener program. I went through Master Gardener training in Arkansas. And then when I moved to Georgia, I went through the training again. And it's a very intense training. One thing about Athens is we had the UGA community to help teach. It was just fantastic learning that you do. And in exchange, you're expected to give back to the community. There are so many ways that you can do it. You can find your niche. Get quite a bit of education, but then you also have a lot of opportunity to share that with the community. And there's so many different ways you can do it. You can do it whether you're quite the introvert or quite the extrovert, whether you want to work outside or you want to answer questions. Mike and I are working at the food bank this Saturday, just answering questions at the booth. Now, that's one thing that you can do. Is that about growing plants or growing vegetables? And I think it's any question that comes to us. Composting, all kinds of things. He speaks fluent horticultural Latin, and I can be charming. We'll get through this. Yeah, that was one of my fears that Mike would just be speaking Latin all the time and not tell us the common name. <laughs> Latin with a Southern accent. <laughs> <laughs> what led you individually to pursue the world of gardening? Several people influenced me, and one was my dad. He was a scoutmaster for years, and he was pretty good with plants. And so that was one of the first merit badges we could get was plant ID or something like that because he had taught us a lot of secret things about plants how to identify them. Then my second one was my aunt, his sister, about 15, I guess, just got my learner's license, but you had to have an adult in the car. So every Sunday after church, we would get in the car and she'd let me drive and we would hit every nursery in town. There was about four at that time, I think. And we would go to every one of them. And it was always funny as we were coming out, she'd say, well, I found this on the floor. May I have it? Because she could root a pencil. I mean, she could root anything. <laughs> She really influenced me, too. And then after college, I met a man at the nursery that I was working at, and he taught me more about plants and gardening in my life that I ever got out of anything else. And he was just a local guy. He loved plants, too, and he had studied some horticulture. His name was Mr. Hunter, and he was a fantastic gardener and taught me a lot of new things and things that I'll never forget. I grew up with a father that read, I swear, every issue of Organic Gardening and Orchid Digest in the 60s and 70s. We had eight acres. He had a greenhouse and espalier fruit trees, garden, all these specimen shade trees, the rose garden, 
patch of lawn that was just this calico mixture of every kind of sod he decided to try. (laughs) He would bring gardenias to the patio in spring and take them back to the greenhouse to overwinter. We'd have compost piles. We'd have piles of topsoil, which was actually great for matchbox cars and Ertl trucks. (laughs) So (laughs) he didn't get a piece of land until he was around 40 years old. He grew up in a New Jersey brownstone. He went through military, retired from the military and found this piece of land at about age 40. And it's funny because I've lived in apartments all my life and found my piece of land about age 40. And I'm thinking, you know, it's a kind of a similar size. It's an almost identical house. It's the same age. And it's just like, oh, you know, dad. (laughs) What are the differences between gardening in Arkansas and we're one zone different? Yeah, it is one zone cooler in Arkansas. But I remember, and I was talking to Mike about this, I remember that crepe myrtles would die to the ground. I was talking to him, lilacs were doing so much better in Arkansas than they do down here. So it was a big difference, but I'm going, it really wasn't that much difference. And can global warming account for all of that? And Mike said, well, you've got to take into account that during those decades, the breeders were also expanding the zone. Breeding of crepe myrtles would make them become tree form too in Arkansas right now. I'm going, oh, well, that makes complete sense. That's one of the aspects is when I was growing up, it was the 60s and 70s. I swear I saw different things happening that's happening there now are getting warmer there. Well, everywhere. It's also the breeders are trying to satisfy everyone. So now I can have lilacs here in my garden. They're still not as great as the northern lilacs, but I I get them. And people further north can start growing things that we've always considered southern plants. Cardenias, they've been breeding those for more cold hardiness. And some of these new varieties would probably make it there now. And I brought a camellia to my sister in Arkansas because some of them are more cold hardy. I remember when I worked in Little Rock, we were thinking about what camellias would make it well in Little Rock. And it was kind of borderline way back then. Now I can bring some camellias to my sister that she can grow in Northwest Arkansas. Now, you said that Mike was talking about the breeders expanding the growing zone. And what do you... Right, yeah. Make them more hardy or cold-hardy. They were expanding where you can grow some of these plants. So they're doing more cold-hardy camellias and gardenias and more heat-tolerant things like northerners have, the lilac. Plants are getting a broader range where they can grow because the breeders are working towards that. And more people are moving south and they want those lilacs that they had up north. We don't have the great big ones like they do yet, but I think they'll be coming down the pipeline eventually. You've talked about some garden memories. What is your very first earliest garden memory? Mine would be first or second grade. I remember we had a teacher who had a plant in the classroom, and it was a spider plant type of hanging basket that plantlets hang off from it. As the year went on, we all got one to root, and I kept that plant for I don't know how many years before I finally lost it or something. And now when I go to a school to talk about plants, I always take one of those that is loaded with little spiders on them so that you can 
pick them off. And it starts out, one kid say, can I have one of those? And I say, yes, and I give it to him. By the time I leave, that plant is stripped all to pieces because they all <laughs> want one. But that was one of my first plants that I'll ever, ever had any affinity for. I remember that plant, probably one of the best Christmas presents I ever got. My aunt probably was having a hard time figuring out what to give a teenager. And she just said, I'll give him one of my spider plants. And, oh, that was such a great plant. It's such a great. Such an easy plant to grow and root. So it's foolproof for a kid. Yeah, yeah. How about you, Connie? Well, I think mine was influenced by a teacher, too, now that you mention it. In third grade, I came home and I was so excited about this tree that lived back when the dinosaurs were alive. And it was called a ginkgo tree. And before I knew it, Dad had it growing in the backyard. We just sold the family home this year. That tree is over 50 years old now and just wonderful. But ginkgos are just fantastic trees. The idea that my father was a plant person, it took very little incentive to get him to to go in the direction of getting another plant in the garden. The idea that, oh, you know, this plant's so cool, and then it was in the backyard. That kind of goes with, I want to go see a botanical garden on the family vacation. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The ginkgo's always been one of my favorite trees, and I think I've instilled it in my children because... When my daughter went off to school, college at uh, Davison up in North Carolina, the first week she was there, she texted me or sent a note saying, Dad, the ginkgos are changing color and they're beautiful. So she remembered that. And I thought, well, good. Something's wearing off on her, you know. Where we go, she sees one. She'll always remind me of the ginkgo. When she was in college, they were mailing ginkgo leaves to each other. <laughs> and it was like, oh. <laughs> Charleston, Connie and I have our favorite ginkgo tree. It must be at least 200 years old. It is gigantic. Why is it your favorite? My two favorites are both the slowest growing trees around, the ginkgo and the Japanese maple. It's such a unique tree. It has such a great history. The shape of the leaf is just so unique. You can dry the leaves beautifully and press them in between a book or something, and then you can mail them in the mail, put them in a card. People are so surprised when they open a card up and these leaflets come falling out. (laughs) There are several ginkgo trees at the Botanical Garden. We collected leaves when we put a sidewalk down in the house. I had some mailed to me from Arkansas. We got some from the Botanical Garden. We got one from the front yard, and we pressed them into the sidewalk to just kind of commemorate our love of ginkgos and the special ones. We didn't make it to Charleston to get one from that tree. Cool idea. What is your most valuable garden mistake? I love the plant called Blue Days. I had a garden center at the time that it came out, Mm -hmm. and everybody was just going gaga for it. And I had a customer that I had to do some great containers for around her swimming pool because she was having a big party or something like that at the pool. We made her up these wonderful containers, and we had the Blue Days spilling out of the pots. It has kind of a silvery gray foliage with this sky blue little flowers that are just unbelievable blue, one of the true blue flowers. Well, I did not know at that time that they close up at night. (laughs) So when everybody got there for the party, there were no blue flowers. (laughs) So I never look at one now that I don't think of them closing up at night. (laughs) They hung you out to dry, didn't they? That's right. (laughs) How about you, Connie? Oh, I think mine are many years back, but I think I really should have listened when gardening friends told me to remove a plant. You know, get that plant out of your garden now or you're going to regret it. And I knew my when I was a kid, my mother fought for years to get mint out of her garden and then English ivy out of her garden. But for me, the Italian arum, I just snarl at that plant. Getting rid of that is, oh, I hate this plant. And I absolutely love it. 
Well, how do y'all go about making a decision in your garden of what you're going to plant? How do you work it out between the two of you when one wants to do something here? Maybe there's a conflict and another one wants to do uh, Oh, well, we have conflicts. <laughs> <laughs> we have definite opinions on. <laughs> she wants to tell you an air and plant out of here now. Oh, and I keep fighting <laughs> to keep it here. Just because it got out of her bed and into the walkway doesn't mean you have to destroy it and get rid of it. <laughs> Just give those to other people. No, and then they've got the problem. I don't pass problems on. <laughs> this plant, this, do you know this Italian marble plant? No, I'm not familiar. It's a bulb. It's a magnificent thing. It has a big arrowhead-shaped leaf, not quite like a caladium, but similar. And it's dark green with creamy marbling through the leaves like marble. So it comes up in September and October. The foliage will start coming up, and you have this lush, rich foliage all winter. Freezing weather does not affect it at all. It just sits there in the freezing cold. The foliage is great to cut and put in arrangements and stuff for accenting. Dies back and starts dying down in mid-spring. But then it shoots up these flowers that look like they're a spath-shaped flower, almost like a cobra head coming up or something. And they're very neat when they bloom. And then the foliage all dies away and goes dormant. And you have bright red seed pods. They are poisonous, so you have to teach your children not to eat them. It's magnificent, but then it's gone by the hot summer. So it'll start coming back up in another month or two here. It is beautiful the way a half dozen deer are beautiful in your garden. Explain that. (laughs) (laughs) You don't really want either one in your garden. (laughs) So the argument continues. I've got to admit, there's one or two trees where I have this fantasy of going out with loppers and getting it before it grown too much more. <laughs> but um, yeah, we don't agree on plants completely. We do on a the majority lot of plants. Of them we do. Um, oh yeah, yeah. And it's fun when we go do a consultation and there are times where it's like, well, you definitely need this plant here. And the other one's like, <laughs> no, this plant would be better here. And, and pretty soon we're, you know, the poor client is like, um, in the middle of our conversation, <laughs> you know, and it's like, no, 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 my plant's better. <laughs> well, that's like, I have one tree at the very back of the property way back that I had to plant it just because of the name of it. I love the name of this tree. I learned it when I was in school. It's Fermiana simplex. Hmm. I don't know if you know that. It's a Chinese parasol tree. A lot of people say it's invasive. So far, I've not seen any on ours, but it hasn't bloomed yet either. It's a very interesting tree. It has these big leaves called an umbrella tree because it looks like you could almost put it over your head as an umbrella. And the bark is jade green, which is very beautiful. I mean, it just shines as jade green bark. Then it blooms with these massive creamy white flowers when it gets more mature. But I always felt like like you'd been to the doctor and he said, I'm sorry to tell you, but you have Fermiana simplex. Sounds like a disease or something. Yeah. (laughs) We do have a dozen muscadine vines in the backyard. And one is on an overhead arbor, the rest on supports. Now it's about half of them that I prune. I remember one time we had Felder Rushing speaking at the Botanical Garden. He was over at the house for a dinner and he kind of scolded me for not having my muscadines pruned yet. And then went out and showed me how you can prune with one hand. That's because he had a beer in the other <laughs> I was trying not to say that. <laughs> yeah, you can have a drink and prune your muscadines at the same time. And actually, later we saw him and he was talking to a friend on the phone and pruning muscadines at the same time while I was making dinner. Now 
now I only prune about half of them because the rest we just kind of let go into this wonderful tangled mess that the brown thrashers love to nest in. Half of them are for wildlife and half of them are for us. Seems like a good division. We have got this abundance of brown thrashers now. Half a dozen muscadine vines are still more than we need. Yeah, I would like to get rid of some of those. I'll trade it for a Fermiana simplex. <laughs> oh, that's 12 plants for one tree? No, one on one. I would like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. I have year-round interest. Spring, summer, fall, and winter, I have something of interest in the garden, whether it be color, foliage, leaf colors in the fall like the ginkgo, camellias blooming in late winter, early spring. I love winter gardening. I'm always trying to find plants that bloom either late winter or very early spring when the temperatures are still at freezing temperatures. And there's some neat things out there. You just have to hunt to find them. What would be some of those? One is the uh, the winter sweet, Cominanthus praecox. It's sort of a tall shrub, kind of gangly looking. But when it opens up in February with the sweetest smelling flowers, you can smell them a mile away almost. They're just wonderful. Of course, Daphne's one of ours that blooms early winter here and blooms beautifully and smells wonderful. If it's real interesting, if you notice the winter bloomers, they're very fragrant. And I think that's because they draw the insects to pollinate that away more so than just their color or whatever. What is the plant by the swing? Connie? Yeah, yeah, sweet box. It's a dwarf sweet box. Himalayan sweet box. Love that plant. Evergreen, rich, dark green, low grow. Well, you can get different ones. You can get them that grow fairly large or tall. But this is a dwarf. It only gets maybe five or six inches at most. But spreads. It's just a beautiful, lush evergreen. And you can go out there in January and find some blooms there. You have to get on your knees to smell them, though, because they're real low to the yeah, ground. He was talking about a, a bench swing. I've got a purple tree swing, which is a great place to have a phone call with a friend and just kind of rock while you're talking to a friend. It's like, so I think in our garden, I have inspiration and bird songs and connection to a bigger world. Grounding is just this amazing grounding force. Then you can see that problems you have or worries you have is kind of lessened when you get out of the house and into a bigger space, into the garden. Puts things more into proportion for me. We have a unique garden. I call our lawn the country lawn. It's got some amazing clover patches in spring. It's beautiful when it's mown. And then about two weeks later, when it's time for another mowing, it's kind of this shaggy country lawn. <laughs> the guys who mow the lawn just kind of, you can see it in their eyes that they're laughing at me, but they're very well composed. <laughs> and it's like, so I'll flag off areas of clover that you have to mow around this week because I just want that clover. It's just too beautiful to mow down right now <laughs> and everything. It's like, okay, we know this woman now. <laughs> I heard Tony Avent from Plant Delight speak one time. He likes to landscape in sweeps of one. And that's sort of what our garden is. We have one of this and one of that. All works together and flows together and looks pretty good. It's a collector's garden. How do you do a collector's garden? 
actually, to be brutally honest, we buy what we want and then we figure out where the heck are we going to put it. It is not as designed as it sounds, but we do have certain areas. Right now, we're developing an area by the fence that we have cleared out. In fact, yesterday I planted seven camellias there. We probably have more plants waiting to be planted than space to plant them. But hey, you know, there are worse addictions. There. Got it figured out where they're going? Or are you just going to let them sit there? And Well, they're going to sit through this summer anyway and let it cool off. It won't be as hard to water them. Yeah. Some have been there for a little while. <laughs> yeah. It isn't the best time to plant, but then sometimes the best time to plant is when you have the time and energy to do it. So it's like, and then we just celebrated. I got a new hose that can reach all the way to the fence easier. Instead of carrying buckets from the end of the hose to the fence, I now get to water by just holding a hose. It just seems like such a luxury to me. Connie's easy to buy presents for. She likes stuff for the garden. Last year for her birthday, she got a new wheelbarrow. And this year she got 200 feet of zero G hose, which are very, very lightweight. And she can pull the 200 feet all around the garden. What other favorite toes do you like? Well, Felco pruners are my favorite. They're one of the best hand pruners for trimming and pruning stuff back. I also, I have Tula hats, three of them by the back door, and they last forever, but I really need a hat. I need a knee pad. I lace a bandana through my belt loop, have my routine. One pocket has the phone, another pocket has the gloves. I do really like a deer spray that is called I Must Garden. I mix it at the kitchen sink. It's not one of those absolutely horrible smelling deer sprays. The company is out of Carolina. That one's much easier for me to work with and it seems to work very well we've been using it for years you can get it pre-mixed or you can get it concentrated mix yourself how often do you have to reapply it well i think every two weeks because it's supposed to go through rain okay It's usually every two weeks, right before I go on vacation. Sometimes what I do is not so much a schedule as working around life. Someone asked me, when do you prune trees? And I told them right after it smacks me when I'm mowing, it gets pruned. (laughs) You know, it's like, yeah, every two weeks is a good routine to get into, except in spring. There is so much new growth that's coming on. You probably need to go at least every week because if you wait two weeks, two weeks of growth, is unprotected and can be four inches long. In one of your recent blog posts, you listed 10 favorite plants, and we've talked about some of them, like the ginkgo, and not sure if we talked about the native fringe tree. How did these 10 plants make your cut? I guess we could take ginkgo again if we need to, but blueberries is the second one on your list. Blueberries have it all. If you're looking at backyard food, they're a fantastic fruit that's high in antioxidants. It also is a native plant. It's got spring blooms. It's got beautiful red fall color. And it's a host to a lot of butterflies and moths, including the spring azure, the little blue butterfly that you see in early spring. Just this amazing shrub that has it all. And you actually use it to screen or define an area too. You need to have at least a few blueberries to cross pollinate. You do need to make sure they have enough water to have a good fruit set. This year we were traveling quite a bit and I did not give them the water they needed. 
that's okay because we fed our birds with the blueberries. The native fringe tree I love. It is absolutely drought and deer tolerant in our front yard. It's a host plant for moths and butterflies too. When it blooms, it blooms before the leaves come out. So you have these fringy white blooms that just sway with the spring breeze. And it's beautiful to watch. I can see it from my office window. In fall, it turns this beautiful kind of a golden color. And it's small size. It's the size of a dogwood or a redbud. Then there's also an oriental fringe tree that blooms later, blooms with the leaves. So it's a very different look. It's still a very elegant plant. But if you are trying to get more native plants into your garden, this fringe tree 15 years ago when the drought was making the redbuds and the dogwoods kind of wheat, this one was glossy green, very healthy. The deer never touched it. It was just the perfect plant. So it's definitely my top 10 plant. I like it being native, but I love the Chinese variety because it uh, has more flowers and thicker blooms and just intensely covered in white flowers in its time. And then now there's a columnar shaped one called Tokyo Towers. It only gets like five or six feet wide and 15 feet tall. It looks like a big exclamation point out in your garden. Not familiar with that one. Yes, Tokyo Towers. Okay. How about azaleas? Well, I love the native ones the best. Those like people used to go dig out of the woods and now there's hardly any left. But you can buy them now. There's a lot of nurseries that are growing native azaleas in an array of colors. There's a guy down at Pine Mountain has fabulous native azaleas for sale. And then I like odd ones, not just the regular common red and white pink you see. We have one called Komoro Shikibu, which I love the name, but I love the plant. It has spidery or strap-like blooms on it. It's kind of a lavender, and it's a species variety, but it's easy to find now. You can find it in a lot of nurseries. It also comes in a white, but it's a Komoro Shikibu. Is that a native? It's not native, no. It's a species, but I'm sure it's Japanese or Chinese, one of those evergreen. It's something else when it blooms. Everybody just freaks out when they see the blooms. They make a great mass planting. Camellias are probably one of my first love. They're great evergreen giants in your garden. They can live many, many years. The flowers are wonderful to cut. Connie brings them in and floats them in crystal bowls and stuff. They last for days and days that way. There's a rainbow of colors to choose. There's a lot of breeding going on with those. There's a new one out. If you don't know it, don't use it. You should. It's called Crimson Candles. This is a blooming machine. Cold does not hurt it no matter what. It can be in full bloom and go down to 20-something that night and the blooms will just still be going the next day. They do not freeze out. It was developed up in North Carolina. He had all these trialing plants and almost all of the camellias died except this one and it just was continuously blooming. It's a great one and I've got Athens all on fire about it. They buy them all up as soon as they find them. The bud, red, like you think you go get a bright red flower. When they open up, they're sort of semi-double or they're bright, beautiful pink. Just a beautiful pink up and down the stem. They almost look like hollyhocks. Wow. So I would highly recommend it for your garden. It also has other attributes like the new foliage comes out kind of a a reddish bronze, sort of like the red tips are used to. And at a young age, it's sort of gangly, like a little teenager or something. But as it matures, it will shape up and you can trim it some and it'll actually take on a real nice full. I have one lady, I think she has 12 of them in her yard. She says, I can see one from every window in my house because I love them. So Mike is the Crimson Candles champion. Every one of our friends has at least one plant. And when we were dating, actually, he showed up with a branch of Crimson Candles in bloom. And I thought he was bringing me 
me a couple dozen roses. I mean, it looked like that much red in his hand. Put one in your yard for a trial, and then you'll be working them into all your landscapes. I'll be on the lookout for that one. You've sold me now. All right. How about Japanese maples? I don't know how anybody could not like Japanese maples. They range from green to the deepest burgundies. They also have some with gold stems and some with red stems. And you got cut leaf and lace leaf and weeping and upright. You have almost every form you can have in a plant with Japanese maples. You can do them in containers on your patio and deck. They can stay in there for years before you finally transplant them out into the yard. It's just a wonderful, unusual, long-living plant. All right. You've mentioned Spigelia before. Tell us about that. That's Connie's favorite. Oh, it's so worth it. It really is. This one is a native that does very well in the shade garden. It blooms very heavily in spring. If you cut back the old blooms and kind of shape it up a little bit, it'll come back and rebloom. We started with one and it's right beside my table under the pecan tree. I think we have three or four of them now. I think every plant sale I seem to adopt another one, but it is definitely a plant to add to a shade garden. Hummingbirds love them. All right. How about hydrangeas? Well, hydrangeas have really taken over in the last 10 or 15 years. Luckily, I was working at a wholesale nursery at the time that I got to do a lot of work with the developing of some of these newer hydrangeas. Of course, Dr. Michael Durr at the University of Georgia is very famous for his love of hydrangeas. So he kind of got me interested in it too. And some of these that we introduced are varieties that he developed. There was Penny Mac, which had been around, and then we had Mini Penny, which was a dwarf form of that. These are all French hydrangeas had the big blue flowers on them. Then also the paniculatus came on the scene. They've been around for hundreds of years or more. Growing up as a child, I don't ever remember seeing paniculata hydrangeas in most people's yards or gardens. Everybody thought they had to be grown up north. Well, then they did all this breeding and out came a limelight, which is one of the best ones. That's number one cut flowers for weddings now is limelight hydrangea. People grow them on farms in rows and rows just to cut the flowers. Limelight's a great one. It starts out lime green and slowly opens up to white. And the neat thing is these will take a lot more sun than the regular hydrangeas. These can almost take full sun as long as they get plenty of water. If you will cut back the blooms as soon as they finish water and fertilize, it will actually set blooms again. And then they had all these new flowers like strawberry vanilla, which opens white and turns pink, kind of an antique looking pink. They have just taken over. One of my new favorites is Bobo. It came out of Belgium and it's a smaller, compact bush, but just very, very proliferous. It looks like it's covered in lace when it's blooming. So look for Bobo when you're out. That's a good one. Paniculatas also work well in large containers. So I could see that by a swimming pool. I love weed choking ground covers, the ones that are so tough that the weeds can't fight against them. I have more than enough weeds in the garden to deal with. When I get these ground covers, things like creeping flocks, cat mints, ajuga in the shade and carex in the shade, some of the herbs like oreganos and creeping rosemary. These weed choking ground covers are just fantastic to be creeping along between other plants, especially other shrubs, to be in the 
front of the garden to soften the edge of a sidewalk. Once they're in place, then they pretty much claim their territory and they're low maintenance after that. They also tend to spread quite a bit. Instead of buying a lot of little annuals, you can buy some of these that will last for years and take up more real estate and then use the annuals to accent. One of my favorite plant categories are bulbs. They're fantastic. They're easy to get in the ground. And once they're in, you can forget about them. Most of them will always come back. My favorite times of year are fall and spring. I could just about do without summer and winter. I tell you, you can't have spring without bulbs. It's just not possible. Fall favorite bulb would be the Lacoris, the red spider lily. We've got them all over the place. I love them. And every time I find more, I'll put out more. I just can't seem to get enough of those. For spring blooming bulbs, we've got early ones, late ones, mid-season ones. Daffodils are narcissus, our favorite to work with. The deer don't like them. They don't eat them. I don't even do tulips. If I do, I might do them in a pot up on the deck where they can't get to them because they think it's candy. It's great that they won't bother the daffodils at all. One of our favorites, too, is the rain lily, and that can be a native. Yeah, I like the pink one. We get a good heavy rain. In two days, they'll be in full bloom again. It's amazing how fast they can throw up a stem with buds on them that are bright pink and open up into this pale pink flower. They're about maybe five or six inches off the ground. They are magnificent, but it's just amazing to me how something can produce a bloom that quick. It can rain, and two weeks later, nothing, and get a good rain, and it'll bloom again. They multiply pretty well, so you can divide them and spread them throughout your garden. Those are rain lilies. Oh, one of my favorite daffodils that I just discovered last year is one called Snow Baby. I'm doing a bed of all white and blue bulbs. So I've got Iffion, which is blue. I've got Spanish bluebells, which are blue. And then I'm planting white daffodils in there. I found this Snow Baby forced in a pot at a nursery. And it, it's sort of like Tay-Tay, the yellow short one. It's a dwarf. Put up sort of a with small little blooms, just nice cluster. They open up sort of a pale yellow that quickly turns to white or fades to white. So I went back to buy more of them. Of course, they'd sold them all. I've already got a catalog in this week that shows that they have it. So I'm ordering them next week. (laughs) I want bunches of them. We have a bed under this crepe myrtle and we've never really planted anything. We just kind of tossed it around. So we finally formed it into a, a bed and we're doing it all in blue and white. Thank you, Connie Cottingham and Mike Sykes. You are wonderful. This has been episode 21, Get Acquainted with Your New Garden, on the Garden Question Podcast. The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question Podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question Podcast with Pregnant Manus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.